Hey, what's up? I am Skinner Myers, and you are listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about black cinema. Welcome to the World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your intrepid hosts, and my name is Andros Jones. And my name is Brian Connolly, and I am also a host, but not intrepid. You are untrepid. <laughs> untrepid. <laughs> uh, and we are here to talk not about a particular film. This is the return to the World is Wrong podcast of our old friend, Skinner Myers. You might remember him from our Chameleon Street episode, which she introduced mm -hmm. me to and thereby yeah. introduced us to. And that film has been rediscovered yeah. significantly since then. So Big thank time. you for, to Skinner for keeping us hip that way. And he also introduced us to next week's film, Residue, from the director Marawi Garima, who you'll hear Skinner talking about in the upcoming interview. Uh, he rep he nominated Residue for an Oscar last year, and uh, Skinner is a professor of film at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's the director of the new film The Sleeping Negro, which is currently playing at festivals and limited short runs in cities around the U.S. And I met Skinner when he was a client at the management company where I was working. And so that's how I got to know him and see one of his earlier short films called Frank Embry, which became a segment in The Sleeping Negro and was totally blown away by him as an artist. And that's why I like to have him on the show. And this week, the professor is in the house to discuss <laughs> how the world is wrong about black cinema. And I know that might be an audacious statement, but Skinner is an audacious artist. And as I have already said, I am an intrepid host and interviewer uh <laughs> brian is not which is why he didn't make it to the interview <laughs> he's untrepid which is why he has uh his, his, his out trepid yeah yeah like it keeps your it keeps your nervous system it, being intrepid is very can be very stressful <laughs> so skinner's here to share his point of view on how the world is wrong about black cinema and it's an an educated and a grounded and an insightful point of view, and I hope you'll stick around and listen to it. And if you're not, well, I mean, really, you've only got like three, three and a half, four minutes into this podcast. Why would you check out now when I've just teased it so wonderfully? <laughs> uh, I guess we're gonna we're gonna start with a clip from Skinner's film, The Sleeping Negro, which is a film we reference a lot in this interview and then we'll go to the interview and afterwards I'm curious to hear what you make of it Brian great there might be spoilers there might be spoilers there might be spoilers I'm 35 years old I have 29 teeth 10 shirts 10 pairs of pants five pairs of shoes, 24 socks, and $6,000 a month to live on. Something is broken. My notion of belonging to the world is starting to slip away from me. My past, 
my present, and my future merge into one. Welcome to The World is Wrong, Skinner. Welcome back, I should say. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Yes, and you are here to tell us how the world is wrong about black cinema. Professor, please get, begin, your, begin your lesson. <laughs> well, I'll just say off the jump, I think my good friend, Mtume Gant, shout out to him. Uh, he's a professor and a black filmmaker and an MC in New York City. We talk about this all the time because he and I and Marari Garima and Jonathan Burnett are working on this anthology feature film project. But I think what we've had for most of the American cinema life in, in this country is Black Hollywood and not Black cinema. We had a moment of Black cinema, which I would consider films from the L.A. Rebellion, which were the filmmakers from UCLA in the uh, 60s and 70s, early 80s, that came out of that film program. And their goal was to make black cinema that was antagonistic towards uh, the modalities, modes, signifying practices uh, that Hollywood was partaking in um, and how Hollywood was treating black characters and story. So I feel like we don't have a lot of black cinema um, currently, um, most of what comes out via some Hollywood entity, whether it's a studio or big financing company, is Black Hollywood. It's not Black cinema. Um, and I think that's an important distinction to make. I think that Black cinema has to work towards changing the social order that we currently live under and it has to fight for the liberation of black people, for black struggles. And that could mean for, I mean, it means form and content both. Um, I will say, you know, there's nothing wrong with watching something for entertainment value, but if that's the only thing that one is pursuing, then that's a big problem because then you're allowing the status quo to remain the status quo. And I think for blacks, for black people, we don't have luxury to um allow things to continue the way they are so we should use all forms of resistance and that's political art any form of art music painting all of that stuff um either in its in its uh, content or uh in the discourse and conversations and actions that we put in to place um through this content right the doors that open through this content so, uh, you know, I think that's kind of where we're at just in the world. I mean, if you look at, if you just take like African cinema, I mean, most of, of the, you know, Anglophone, uh, Francophone, like African countries didn't really get a chance to start developing their own cinematic language until after colonization, which we're talking like 70s for a lot of the countries, you know. So it's quite, cinema is super, super, super young in lots of different countries in Africa. And then you also have an emulation, like in Nigeria, there's Nollywood, which, you know, a lot of African filmmakers, because of this, the, the uh, effects of capitalism and neo-colonialism, uh, 
or post-colonialism, which is kind of like an oxymoron, um, people are suffering. So they're trying to find ways to break in, make money. And so they're making films that are full of, you know, African actors, maybe some African stories, but they're trying to Hollywood eyes it. And so um, there's, there was a lot of great African filmmakers from the 60s and 70s that are past, they died. Um, and they were really trying to discover what African cinema was for Africa, for the countries in Africa, you know. And I think we have the same issue here in America as black filmmakers. We're American based on the institutions that raise us up, you know, school, church, family. And you're basically a nomad in a way, right? Mm-hmm. James Baldwin has this quote that I'll paraphrase because I don't know, remember exactly what how it was worded, but basically it's like, I'm African with no memory. I'm an, I'm an American with no privilege, right? Mm-hmm. So you're kind of like a nomad. You're in the middle of nowhere, but you're trying to craft, you're, you know, trying to craft a cinematic language that speaks to the memory and identity that you lost based on your ancestors coming over as slaves, you know? And so, so this the other day, it's like when you're learning a language, the best way to learn a language is to learn the culture of the people that you're trying to learn the language from, you know, mm-hmm. that helps you kind of understand the nuance. And so for black Americans, our default culture is this patriotic Americanism that we have to fight against because that's not really us, but there's a big disconnect to, um, our African ancestors. So it's, you know, there's a lot of, there's, it's good and bad. It's good in a way where there's a lot of space for creativity. There's a lot of space for great imagination, reimagining what cinema, black cinema can be completely. Um, but whenever you're creating something from the beginning, uh, you have nothing to work off of. It's quite challenging to kind of get going, you know? And also because we live in a global capitalistic society, the market kind of dictates who gets resources yeah. to make movies. And that's another problem, you know. Um, Ali Garima talks about, he has a, a theory called triangular cinema theory, which boiled down to a nutshell is basically, um, you know, you have the filmmakers, you have the audience, and you have the critics. And there has to be a reimagination, a re-education on how Filmmakers make films, have audience consume the films, and have critics critique the films in order to uplift um, black the black community and change the social order that we're in. And that's a hard thing to do because capitalism has dangled a carrot of money and success and wealth in, in front of everybody. And so a lot of people don't want to, you know, fight the struggle. I mean, it's... Can I ask you a question? Actually, yeah, I'm yeah. kind of curious with that that triangle theory, and you're talking about capitalism. It seems like what's left. It seems like there's a there's a fourth quadrant there, which is the you know the money. Like you, you know, like unless the because I guess in that view of filmmaking, the filmmakers and the funding sources for the filmmakers are seen as the same thing. Where, I mean, it's you're not just saying this, but you seem to be explicitly saying this, and it seems like it's just an an obvious fact of the whole history of cinema is that there is a big disconnect between the filmmakers and the funding. So how does that figure into that theory? 
Well, I think it would figure in because the people who have the money, um, they're like the wealthy audience. Got it. Member, right. And so one, they want to fund stuff that they can enjoy. And two, because of how the market dictates what gets made and whatnot, they're also trying to make money. So they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, where in that regard, cinema can only be for escapism and entertainment purposes only. Um, and there's a problem if you really drill down to it, like, you know, I have students who say, oh, I love cinema because I can escape my reality and live in a fantasy world. Well, why is that? Because capitalism, white supremacy, um, has created such a horrific existence for a lot of us that we're trying to find modes of escapism in not just movies, but in other aspects of life, you know, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or um, religion, or, you know, whatever. These all seem like, these are, uh, seem like themes that you've explored in your film, yeah. The Sleeping Negro. Yeah. That seems very, this, these are, uh, we haven't mentioned it yet, obviously we mentioned it in the intro, but feel yeah. free to use your film, The Sleeping Negro, as, uh, you know, to to offer examples if you, throughout this. I'd like to encourage people to check out that film. And since it's not really available for everyone, we couldn't really do an episode about it, but this is our way mm -hmm. of kind of sneaking that in here. So feel free to use that as an example, because uh, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking about, I'm seeing images from the film. So uh, the art, yeah. in your case, the art, the agenda, the art and the agenda seem to be one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, obviously, it takes money to make movies, right? But if you're really good at it, you don't need that much money, as you proved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's true. But one thing we're really good at in this country is prioritizing money-making schemes and, and prior to prioritizing corporations. I mean, this country is mm -hmm. a very corporate-ran company by corporations. Um, so other countries in Europe and other places they still have funds for film where it's a grant that usually provides most, if not all of the budget for a movie. And it's, it's to advance culture because culture, um, kind of like can be obviously can be changed based on what the masses deem. Right. Um, and, uh, the countries that have money for films, it's like there's no pressure to make money on this movie. I can just make it say something really important and have this grant money and 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 find an audience that way. And it's like people want to see stuff that's not Hollywood. They just don't have that choice. Um, I've got I've had so many conversations with people uh, with the Sleeping Negro. I've been traveling with it around the world, and they're like, "Oh, it's so nice to see something that's not, you know, just car chases or shootouts or whatever that you can have." chew on stuff that you can chew on and there's a lot of filmmakers out there like myself but you know because of how the market operates when you make a film like this then everyone's trying to force it into like this capitalistic box and who's your audience yeah sorry well, that's, my, that's like I mean, no that's like the the question that always like who is yeah, the audience for this you know <laughs> yeah like i spoke to this pr company when we were uh, before we played Slam Dance, and they were like, "We love the film, 
we thought you dealt with the issues uh, responsibly, which I was like, I don't know what that means. Yeah. And like, <laughs> we have to, we have to like kind of make this a little bit more accessible to people. And I was like, mm, clearly you don't get it. Like people, it's funny, everyone, I've not everybody, but a lot of people that have watched the film who've liked it. Cause a lot of people hate it. That's fine. I mean, rather you hate it than just be like, yeah, it was okay. Um, Cause you'll talk about how much you hate it or you talk about how much you love it. You know? And um, people who are like, Oh man, it's great. You know, for your next one, like, you got to, like, think, how can you get to, like, a bigger audience? Like, you should, I would love to see you do something in the space of, like, horror. Or, like, how can you, because everything goes back to Jordan Peele. And because I put that, you know, quip in The Sleeping Negro, this little quip about Get Out. I mean, the movie was shot in the summer of 2019. We're talking almost three years ago. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, you hear that quip in a lot of movies. And it's kind of mm-hmm. like, ah, it's kind of worn out now. but. They think because I've mentioned Jordan Peele's Get Out that I'm a fan of his, and I'm not a fan. I don't hate him, but I don't know him, right? But I'm not a fan of him, his his films. And um, I was that was like a tongue in cheek kind of meta thing that I was I put in there uh, for a reason. But they're just like, oh, I'd love to see you in a horror space. I'd love to see you take your social commentary and your visual style and like apply it to basic commercial application where you can make money off of it. And I'm like, you people don't get it. Like, I'm never going to do that. You know what I'm saying? I'm never going to do that. So it seems very I grew up in a punk rock town. It seems like a very punk rock ethos, like the same kind of thing of like, no, it wouldn't. You know, this band that people love, like Fugazi would not work on a major label. Yeah. Yeah. It would yeah. turn off all their fans and the people and no one else would like them. Right. So, yeah, exactly. so, yeah, I, I, there's something here that I, mean, I know that your specific focus is black cinema and that's what we're here to talk about. But it also seems like that dichotomy between black cinema and black Hollywood could just be the difference between cinema and Hollywood in a more general sense. Like, yeah, anyone yeah. who has who wants whether, you know, if you're a. You know, maybe it's a little bit easier now, but if you were like a, you know, again, speaking to the town I come from, if you're a radical feminist filmmaker from Olympia in 1985, you're going to be up against the same, not the same thing, because obviously it's different, but similar dynamics of like, you might do something cool and breakthrough, but then unless you're willing to become, to try and become Catherine Bigelow, you're not going to, no one's going to throw money at you and you're going to disappear and maybe be rediscovered, you know, 30 years later by people who are searching for the few feminist filmmakers from the 1980s. And <laughs> it seems like a similar a similar struggle. And it, I, I would hope that that would be something that would create a cinematic solidarity, whether you are a black filmmaker or a feminist filmmaker or just an interesting filmmaker who's anti-capitalist, right? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, I'm working on this, you know, PhD dissertation about this subject and black cinema is important to me obviously i'm black and i love my community but the i'm trying to come up with a theory i call it antagonistic cinema theory and it's it's the beginning stages it's not fleshed out it's borrowing from uh pieces from third cinema fourth cinema um it's looking at harley garima's triangular cinema theory uh um nomadism and I'm trying, cause like, 
basically the idea is if the theory has merit by the time I'm done with this experiment or this process of research, then any non-white people's um, or anybody who is just, you know, who wants a uh, more equitable society can tap into this theory for the type of cinema that they want to make. You know what I'm saying? Could you could you explain something? Because I, I, I have a feeling that a, a large number of our audience may be more educated in popular film than in mm -hmm. film theory. When you talk about first, second, third, and fourth cinema, would you mind just explaining what that is for our audience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a nutshell, I mean, this is very, very broad and basic. But first cinema theory our first cinema would be considered like hollywood right anything made through the hollywood system second cinema would be would be considered um auteur auteur theory so like tourism, you know um filmmakers who uh create their own style is very distinct like a wes anderson type like, or like those... a cassavetes like i'm trying like where yeah. would it would it go would it sort of start with auteurism independent auteurism start around that era, like early 60s, Cassavetes yeah. and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Cassavetes would be like second cinema. I mean, I think there's films in the second cinema vein that could be Hollywood. I mean, you could be second with a little yeah. bit of drinking on there. But the rough, like the very basic is like, first cinema is Hollywood, second cinema is like a tour theory, right? Basically mm -hmm. like the filmmaker decides like the style. Third cinema, um, basically was like meant to challenge uh, Hollywood's model. So it was rooted in like revolutionary activism um, in like Latin America, right? Because like, I would say second cinema, a tour, the tour ship of second cinema was probably based out of European art film, you know, and it made its way to America. But third cinema, um, well, there's third cinema and there's third world cinema. So third world cinema is more of a geographical location, like cinema from the third world. And then third cinema is um, anti-Hollywood, anti-capitalist, revolutionary in a way. And fourth cinema... Oh, just mind, what's, a, what's an example? What would be an example of third cinema that people might check like, out? Like a movie? Yeah. Uh, I would say, let's see, what's a good film? Um, you have like, Glober Roca from Cinema Nouveau is a Brazilian filmmaker. I, you know, you could watch like Black Dog, White Devil is a great film. Entranced Earth is a great film of his. Um, I mean, there's so much. There's so much out there. Um, well, that's why I wish we could all take your class. That's why I'm trying to, to get these resources out to some, to our to our uh, the world is wrong listeners. So feel free to pile on. Pile on. We'll we'll. Get these films seen more. Yeah, I mean, there's like Jabril Diopmanbeti, Usman Simbin, Usman Simbin. There were Senegalese filmmakers. They're both past. Jabril made Tuki Buki, which is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, first movie, self-taught, and then his second film, Hyenas, is great. But he passed away of, I believe, a leukemia at the age of 50. And his niece is Maddie Diop. She made a movie called Atlantics. She's half French, half Senegalese. Mm -hmm. Um, his brothers are like a famous musician, her daddy. Uh, so yeah, like third cinema and then fourth cinema basically said that fourth cinema focuses explicitly on Native American cinema. Um, it's, uh, they felt that third cinema still had, 
I guess, um, tropes of Western thought. And um, so fourth cinema was was made to focus on like indigenous cinema, right? Indigenous everywhere or indigenous North American? Are you, is, is there a, does, is there, is there a difference applied in, in this definition? Uh, fourth cinema is like, is indigenous, just indigenous uh, anywhere. So like Got it. Uh, Native Americans, but like the Aborigines, like if there's filmmakers trying mm-hmm. to make, uh, like fourth cinema theory um, focuses on, on that, right? Encompasses all means of indigenous cinema. Got it. Uh, made for indigenous people by indigenous people. And um, I think, I'm trying to remember, I think there's a, uh, I think it was coined like 20 years ago or so. I don't know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. But yeah, so the idea is like, um, Indigenous cinema, even through first, second, and third cinema, uh, doesn't really have complete opportunities to thrive. So fourth cinema, and these are theories, right? And the theory, you have to kind of try it out to see if it works. But fourth cinema was created to, like, give room for indigenous cinema. And, um, you know, so if we want to take it even further, like, black cinema... I wouldn't call it fifth cinema because I'm not trying to follow a, a numerical system. But for the sake of the conversation, one could say, well, fifth world cinema is black cinema from the diaspora, you know, um, because then it takes, you know, black cinema from the continent of Africa out of third world and then connects it to black Americans, black Canadians, you know, black Australia, like any black diaspora peoples. So I'm trying to work on antagonistic cinema theory that focuses on the black diaspora without giving it a, a number, but then it can be utilized by non, like other people as well, you know. Um, but again, it's, it's the beginnings of this research. So that's my aim. My aim is, is for that. I mean, obviously, like, I need money to make movies, but I don't need millions and millions of dollars, right? Like, we waste so much money, obviously, in this country on so many things. But if the movie's budgeted $200 million and you break that down just from the salaries alone, what is really being left on screen is not $200 million. Like, if people just took, like, do you need to make $20 million for a film and you're making three films a year? Like, who needs that much money? You know what I'm saying? So. There can there can be a recalibration on how much films cost because they're just highly inflated, man. You know, I mean, um, I don't know. Like it's the greed, the greed is a problem too. But well, and in, in a, it is, and also it's it's a weakness. Mm-hmm. Are many two hundred million dollar movies going to speak to us in? 30 years the way a film like Chameleon Street that you turn me on to does? Yeah. Are people going to rediscover a $200 million movie and be like, oh my God, how did we never notice that? <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. I, it's sort of, again, it goes back to that punk rock thing. And I'm, I'm not even a huge punk rock fan. I just grew up in a punk rock town, so I inherited the ethos. 
My idea of being punk rock in a punk rock town is to play, play really sweet sounding music that's funny. <laughs> but anyway, my point is that you can't make a great punk rock record in, you know, in a record, co- in, inside of a record company that is going to throw money at that record, that's just going to make it sound like not a punk rock record. And in the same way, it's, yeah. it's hard to make a powerful working class or statement film that that really challenges the status quo yeah. if you have that huge budget. I think we're seeing that with a film like Don't Look Up. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it wants so badly to be revolutionary. Yeah. But it's like, you know, it's like revolutionaries at a very fancy party. And you can just feel it. Like if that yeah. film had been a low budget film. Yeah. It might have it might have more impact across the board. I'm not even I'm not I'm not trying to pile onto that film. I'm just using that as one no, example. No, no, yeah. I mean, like, look at the class of people who made that. Though. These are all like wealthy one percenters who've been wealthy for a long time. And their hearts may be in the right place, right, for certain things, but maybe they're not the best messengers for that message, you know. Um, and it's almost like, I don't know, I mean, not to get too deep into the whole climate change issue, but um, it's, uh, we're basically overlooking a lot of really, to me, other equally important issues. Um, that we could be looking at that can be changed right away as we work towards, uh, you know, a better climate for the world. But um, saving the world from the effects of climate change, but allowing it to kind of stay fucked up as it is, I mean, that doesn't do, that doesn't bode well for most of us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask a question about something you mentioned earlier when you were talking about European countries and how they fund films or art in general to, to promote culture. Now, my limited understanding of that is that promoting culture means promoting their culture. Like I had a lot of friends in Canada who got uh, grants to promote Canadian content around the world. They weren't, you know, and they might, I'm sure that at, at some point in that, they also did include indigenous Canadian people. But do you feel, I mean, does that, do minorities in those cultures have access to those grants if they are challenging those cultures? Or are they up against a similar kind of prejudice in those countries mm-hmm. that, that Hollywood enforces here? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm sure they do. I mean, the the bodies that are award these films definitely have an agenda. Yeah, I was in Europe in September and all of November. I was in Paris, Italy, Germany. Uh, uh, I went to Poland, and I was in uh, the Netherlands. And I was talking to a lot of um, filmmakers, European filmmakers, and programmers and all that, festival directors. And yes, these programs exist. But everyone has an agenda. So you even have to fight nepotism. You have to fight connections to get access to some of these funds. Um, what tends to happen is you see the same people kind of make getting the funds over and over. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean people break through and things don't fall through the cracks. But yes, you always, whenever there's an institution with, I think, with a, a body of people 
who get the power to make a decision on something, they're going to have these biases, right? And so the, the goal would be to make it more of a um, like communal decision type thing, but it's, it's hard. I mean, so yes, I'm sure there are people of color in these other countries who still struggle to get access to these funds, but I will say, you know, people fall through the cracks. Look at Steve McQueen in his first movie uh, with Michael Fassbender, Hunger, about the Irish IRA terrorist group, uh, Bobby, what was it? Bobby something, that actually got elected to uh, Parliament, but um, as he died of his, on his hunger strike. I mean, that movie was funded by Channel 4. Bobby Sands, sorry. just Bobby up. Sands, yeah. That, that movie was funded by Channel 4 in the UK and the Northern Ireland Film Fund, if I believe. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the budget was $4 million. And so it took him years to get that movie funded. But finally, he got funding in a way where, like, it's not like he had to pay that back, you know. And it kind of gave him, he was making fine art films um, most of his career. And it wasn't until his 40s or so, thir- late 30s, that he made Hunger. And that kind of gave him a chance to be seen by a wider audience. I mean, I'm sure if through some miracle, if the sleeping Negro was able to get in front of a hundred thousand eyeballs, then I would have an easier chance of probably getting support financially to make something else a little bit bigger magnitude. But even when you make a movie successfully, you know, it's like if you don't have enough money for the marketing, so then you have to deal with all the capitalistic, uh, uh, issues that come along with the marketing industry. Right. Then you have to deal with uh, PR and all that stuff. So, like at every level, you have to deal with this this thing that the market dictates, and it makes it really challenging um, just to stay successful. I think filmmaking for me is a hobby. It has to be a hobby. It's not a way. It's not sustainable for me to to have integrity, keep my sanity, and, and make movies in this current day and age because you would have to sell sell your soul to Satan. And I just want to point out that it's not like you're you're someone who is you hasn't tried. You I know for a fact you have worked, you have attempted to work within the system in Hollywood. Yeah, for a long time you've taken the meetings, you've been with the big agencies, you've had, you know, you. It's not just sort of like someone who's in some small town saying, "Oh, Hollywood does," you know. you know, Hollywood yeah. works this way. You have been in you've been in this machine. You've tried to figure out ways to work. And yeah. it seems like you've managed to figure out a way that a lot of, I would say, pure artists, not not to say in the sense, not to make that a qualitative judgment, but just like a descriptive, like, as you say, you have it has to be a hobby. And you have found a place in academia where you can continue to focus on film, to teach film, to be supported in in a way that uh, you know I, I in a way that I've I I've watched from outside and been like wow that's that's the way to do it that is the way to do it you yeah. know and and again you couldn't have done that if you hadn't done all the work that you've done in the world of academia uh, to get there so yeah I just want people who are listening because a lot of times people will get on I'll listen to a lot of podcasts and people make a lot of complaints and it just sounds like they're someone who hasn't tried. <laughs> Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, 
I would say for a good 15 years, I tried to play the game, you know. I went to USC film school. Um, I sold a TV show to Warner Brothers that fell apart. I mean, I've written so many scripts, it's not even funny. I've written pilots, I've written tons of features. I've been hired to write movies. I did that for a bit. And um, with each project, I would lose a piece of myself, my soul and stuff, and um, just got fed up with it. And I was very fortunate to fall into teaching. It was never the plan to be a professor. And uh, in fact, I was only hired part-time by Loyola Marymount University for a couple of years. And then one of my friends who was my boss at the time got me a one-year contract for like full-time teaching, but the pay was quite bad, but I needed it, you know. Um, and I would have never gotten ten tenure track anything at LMU. It was not in the cards for me there, but when I made The Sleepy Negro and we went to Slam Dance and we sold the film after Slam Dance, I um, got a little bit more interest from other colleges for tenure track positions. And I realized like in, in my 40s, a lot of my favorite filmmakers were professors for a long time, still had a robust indie film life, you know. And I'm very thankful for, for the job that I have. I really enjoy teaching, uh, teaching and I enjoy working with young people and trying to help them figure out who they are as artists and what they want to say. But I have a lot of issues with Hollywood and how it's colonized cinemas of other people and how it's um, if you don't get if you don't go along with their program, you know, they'll try to crush you at every step. Um, but what my point is, there is room for other types of cinema. People want to see it. They're just not given the choice. So. You know, it's just it's challenging on your own to find those people around the world, you know. It's expensive. You have to fly and stay in hotels and eat. Um, but you know, I don't know. It's uh, I don't. I was asked this question by on on the on the German podcast last week. Has anything changed for black cinema since you know, black exploitation era since LA Rebellion? And I was like, no, nothing has changed at all. Either you sell out or you don't. I mean, either you audition for a Marvel franchise by making some aesthetically pleasing indie film that has all the um, fixings of Hollywood underneath its veneer, and then you land some big studio movie and you start making millions of dollars making these vap, you know, vapid, banal, like very empty films, and you're rich and you can win your like each. All these rich people just give each other awards and they say, oh, you're so amazing, you're so great. And it does nothing to advance the culture. It does nothing to put food on people's tables, a roof over their head. Um, it doesn't challenge anything. To me, that's, that's a waste of your, one's talent. So um, it's almost like America loves to spend so much money on its military, but yet it doesn't want to provide any type of basic social services for the citizens, you know. Yeah. That would cost way less than the military budget. It's just Hollywood has money and they have the room to have an entire, like, to, I mean, it doesn't have to be through a Hollywood system. They could, you know, 
channel the money through a certain entity that then allows people to make what kind of art house films they want to make. Which would be good for film in general and would yeah. actually, you know, in the end be good for the industry if the industry is about making more and better films. Yeah, but Holly, yeah, that you're right. But Hollywood, <laughs> not. I mean, Hollywood, right. propaganda arm of, of America. So right. strong agenda. And that's, you know, the market's going to dictate what they do. But it's even these film festivals, too, that's a problem, man, because film festivals like Sundance and whatever. They have an opportunity to really discover new talent, really say, look, this is cool. But all they're doing is becoming an extension of Hollywood. And they're just programming studio indie films, quote unquote indie, but they're studio films, A24, Neon, you know, that already have distribution to sell lots of tickets. It's so crazy, man. It's like, yeah, that's I mean, that's. I mean, again, coming from music, that's like all the music festivals mm-hmm. that I ever went to in the 90s and whatnot. They come, you know, this is where we launch indie bands, but then all the showcases are for all the major showcases are with major bands on major labels. Yeah. So let's just talk. I want to get into some sort of examples, because one of the things that I've been thinking about as I've been thinking about this conversation this week, we uh, saw the passing of Sidney Poitier. Yeah. And... For a lot of people, Sidney Poitier is the beginning of like a black cinema the same way that Jackie Robinson is the beginning of black baseball, which means that it's not the beginning. It's the beginning of the integration, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I've been kind of I've been wondering because I know that you I know we've talked about this before. I know your feelings about the history of Hollywood cinema and yet, I'm curious, are there people, maybe Poitier's one, maybe other people are, who have, whether or not they've successfully achieved what you'd like to achieve outside of the Hollywood system, uh, that inspired you or that you feel like we're reaching for that or standing on the shoulders of giants kind of thing? Yeah, Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. If he came before Sydney. And, right. And... Uh... He got blacklisted, blackballed. He got he got ruined in America because he was a communist, rightfully so. I mean, he was uh, uh, black people were were not even really deemed human, you know, when he was coming up, and he he had to do certain things in the beginning of his career, you know, for money. But he always advocated for the black struggle. Sidney advocated for the black struggle as well. I mean, a lot of the black performers coming up back in the day were completely neutered in a way you know it was either you do this to make money or you, or you don't but when they most of them when they got a platform and they got ears and eyeballs on them they did the right thing to the best of their ability given the time they were living in you know i mean paul robeson and sydney were living in a time where lynching was legal mm-hmm. and um same with um um a lot of perform musicians you know but i paul robeson's integrity and how he stood up to the american government and fought for black liberation and struggled to make ends meet towards the end of his life was very inspiring to me you know be willing to sacrifice a career uh to fight for what's right and it's very easy to get caught up in the money i mean 
capitalism will reward you handsomely if you go along with the system, you know. But that doesn't bode well for the future of black people. It doesn't bode well for the future of humans in period, you know. Um, and we just have, have the stronger imagination. But I mean, I'm thankful for, I mean, I couldn't imagine what I would do or how I would live coming up in this country at a time that, you know, Sidney Portier and Paul Robeson and Dorothy Dandridge and so many others came up in. Um, I think a lot of times we want to, we have presentism that we want to put on to a situation. Like we see um, choices that were made through how things would be done today, you know. But um, what I'm afraid of is the progress that those giants made basically getting squandered and disappearing because of how people are so willing to sell out for money these days well not I mean, well i got I, I got to reflect back but not you and you got and you're yeah. you're I don't, you're special but or you're unique but not special you're special but not unique there's paul robeson continues to inspire people yeah inspire me inspire like i don't think you have to be black to be inspired by paul robeson uh, yeah. his like in the 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 family I grew up in, he's seen as a hero, yeah, and and not a solo hero. There were many, there were people across the board who made similar choices and lost similarly. You know, and, mm -hmm. and that's why per, uh, people who listen to the show know that the red scares and the anti-communist witch hunts and the just misrepresentation mm -hmm. of the communist party as this sort of evil force when they were the only political party in the United States that was opposed to lynching and working yeah, yeah. actively against it at the time, that that's a really big one for me. But I yeah. think I, I, I totally hear what you're saying, but I don't want to underestimate the value of a career like Paul Robeson's or of, again, the artists who had to make great sacrifices, but inspire us today. Um, yeah, for sure. it's yeah, it, it shouldn't be seen as a small thing like no, no, Robeson no. lost in life in a way, but he didn't because, as you say, he maintained his integrity in his soul. But he speaks to us more today than most artists, film artists of his time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a lot of artists out there like me that want to make this art is just we're all struggling to get support financing. Uh, distribution support, marketing support. I mean, The Sleeping Negro didn't get programmed in a lot of theaters based on the title alone. I spoke about that in the article in Filmmaker Magazine. I mean, Film Forum and others are like, yeah, without even looking at the movie. You know, I mean, we're we're yeah. slowly getting to more cities. We're going to be in Columbus, Pittsburgh, and all other places. But um, there's a lot of people people out there that feel the same way. And I know a lot of them, a lot of them. We're just trying to, you know, find that circle of support. And it's very hard because you're swimming up against a current, you know. So we ha it's sort of implied in this con this conversation, but uh, and we haven't mentioned them, but there are some sort of prominent black filmmakers in America that are generally trotted out as like, OK, well, th this is black cinema. Mm -hmm. Spike Lee. Ava DuVernay, 
people, filmmakers who I like, I enjoy. I enjoy Hollywood movies. I that's where yeah. I that's what I come from. So I'm uh, I'm definitely entertainable, but I'm not. But but I think your perspective on those and maybe other filmmakers you'd like to mention, I, not to invite you to tear anyone down, but to maybe just speak to the dynamic that these popular uh, black American filmmakers represent. Well, I think like all, all these black filmmakers, Barry Jenkins, Nate Parker, these guys, Spike. I mean, Spike, when he started off, he's doing awesome amazing film work amazing work talking about the community challenging things and then you become very wealthy and successful and then you kind of like the cars and you like the houses and you like the ease of of what this capitalistic life gives you when you have money um and then you start to you know get confused on political things and choices so uh, it's hard i mean like when you become wealthy in this system it's very easy to be like, all right, well, let's just take the easy path forward. I think um, it takes time to see what who people become over their body of work, you know. And I think people like Barry Jenkins and those cats, I'm not super excited about what they got coming down the pike, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, why are we remaking things like Lion King when... There's so many rich black stories that could be told via someone that now has access and kind of can do whatever they want within a way, you know. But whenever people get to that level of doing whatever they want, they tend to like just forget who they were and they just do whatever is commercial success, you know. Um, but it's like, I don't know. I mean, I go back and forth with it because I'm not in their shoes. I just know that there's so many stories that are worth being told, not through a Hollywood system, but some of these cats probably could pull financing easily to tell them and then still reach an audience. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I do feel like those cats make Black Hollywood. I will give Ava credit that she has a ray and she's been picking up black art house filmmakers, you know, so people who wouldn't have a platform are getting a platform through her. Um, but I have to separate what she's doing for the community in that regard from her politics and the movies that she makes personally. Um, and, you know, I don't know, like when you've been rich longer than you've been poor, your class consciousness changes and that stuff just constantly has to be kept in check. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I think anything, even art house films have to have some type of entertaining value to it, or why would anyone watch it, you know? But a lot of times when you say entertaining value, you think explosions and sex and all the violence and all this stuff. Um, Actually, I, th this is where I want, this is a question I wanted to ask as well, because when I think of entertaining, I just think of, I, like, if I laugh a couple times in the movie... <laughs> like, and we talk a lot about comedies on this on this podcast, and I don't know, do I see Chameleon Street as it's a dark comedy, but I think it's a comedy, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a satire, yeah, right. for sure. Uh, in terms of uh, like, where do, where do you think black cinema or black comedies fit in your view of antagonistic uh, cinema? 
Well, I mean, they, I mean, they definitely have a place. It just depends on how it's approached. I'm not a comedy person at all. I'm not a comedian, comedian, stand-up comic. I don't make funny movies. Um, I think a lot of comedians uh, to become a famous stand-up comic, it's all about the individual, right? You're mm-hmm. you, you. And so you take that into movies and it kind of just continues that super American Western hyper individualism. And so I think in order for comedy to have a place in what I, what I would consider antagonistic cinema, then it would have to be like a chameleon street taking really heavy objects as subjects and telling them through a comedic way that's relatable, but also that's um, blunt and, and potent. Right. And I've never seen a movie like Chameleon Street since Chameleon Street. And that, was, that came out in 1990, you know? And, um, but I just don't see a lot of current black comics going that route because a lot of them are coming from stand-up, which is all about the individual and they're just trying to get famous and successful. You know, they're not trying to change the status quo. They want to maintain it. It was a, it was a, a, a long time ago, and I don't, it's why I don't have a very clear memory of the film, and my consciousness was very different when it came out. But what about a film like Hollywood Shuffle? Robert Townsend's How Hollywood yeah, Shuffle. Hollywood Shuffle is great. Hollywood Shuffle is great. But again, like we're talking one uh, film every what? So often. You know what I'm saying? Um, oh, yeah. We definitely, there, there could definitely be more. I'm just trying, I'm, I'm, what I'm just trying to do is to, to, hunt out some examples yeah yeah hollywood uh, shuffle is a big example i mean he it was a satirical comedy and he critiqued the racial stereotypes in in hollywood i mean it was it was it's a great movie it's a wonderful film but again like there you didn't get to make many more <laughs> that's for yeah. sure and now teaches at usc i mean it's like there should have been a thousand of those types of chameleon street hollywood shuffles because a lot of people had those ideas, but they can never get support for it. You know, and Hollywood Shuffle was was not financed by a studio. It's one of those things, kind of like um, uh, sweet, sweet, back badass song. I mean, that was like money pulled from the black community because no one would support it. So once something blows up like this, then you're going to see imitations that take out the political uh, aspect of it. You know, mm-hmm. but also too, you had to think like back then, like you had Keenan Ivory Wayans with Living Color. Like you, you don't, we don't have anything like that. Even in our culture and the media, like we don't have a living color. Everything is so reactionary on both left and right sides. Everything is so like you have the, the dressings of a joke, but you have no substance of a joke. So like the timing is perfect and it sounds like a joke, but it really is not. No one is saying anything. And so are you a fan of the Wayans brothers work? Yeah, 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 for sure. Awesome. That's funny. That's I. That was uh. We were uh, uh, talking about my uh, my co-host is a huge fan of their their work, and we were talking about doing uh, an episode about Fifty Shades of Black. Mm-hmm. And you know, me, I watched it, and I was like, I don't know this this this. Have you have you seen Fifty Shades of Black? I haven't seen Fifty Shades of Black. No. So it starts off. If you've seen Fifty Shades of Grey, which he made me watch. To, so I could watch Fifty Shades of Black. Mm-hmm. It starts off with this rich guy running and getting into his car and doing all the stuff. And then they do a parody of it, sort of airplanes, the Sucker Brothers style. And he's running, but then he steals this woman's purse. And then mm-hmm. he's there's a fancy car, and he steals the fancy car from the valet. 
And I was just like, why is it doing this stereotype? And it doesn't even, it doesn't, then the film isn't even that he's this, he's a, he's still just a rich guy. It just uses this, it makes this joke about a black guy being a criminal at the beginning of this movie. And I was like, ah, but then this is the disconnect of like, what is the language of black cinema? And maybe why I'm asking this about like, maybe comedy is where, because so much about comedy is like a shared experience and you have to have the shared experience to find it funny. Mm-hmm. So yep. I was really expecting that of like when that, that the Wayans brothers would be not something that you liked, but again, that's just probably my own prejudice coming out. Well, no, I would say early Wayans brothers. I think Keenan was is Keenan especially. I mean, Marlon is funny, but Keenan really was the brains behind a lot of that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and Keenan doesn't really do a whole lot right now so uh, 50 shades of black i don't know if i would dig that particular movie um because i haven't watched the wayne's brothers film since way back in the day but i'm talking like i'm talking basically living color days yeah we don't have anything like that cultural critique through comedy anymore even in the black community you know what i'm saying everything is like assimilation assimilated into um, it's almost like America and the West do, do a great job of erasing the distinct characteristics of our identities. Um, you know, my friend Mtume made a great movie called Whiteface, a short film about that. It's like, you're an American actor, you're not a black actor. No, I'm a black filmmaker. Mm. Because that's very important to make that distinction until we live in a, a more equitable society. I am, my skin color dictates how I'm treated. And it dictates uh, opportunities, you know, uh, for me. Um, and so that's just the truth of the reality of the situation. You can ignore it and say post-racial and say, I don't see color. But it's so you just sound like an idiot. Yeah. Um, you just sound like a straight idiot. So, you know, I, I think there's room for all genres, even war genre, sci-fi. But it's like, who's really focusing on trying to, take those genres to a whole nother level to critique and to say something important versus just trying to get rich and get picture deals and make money and live in a big house. You know, like you want a big house is move to freaking Iowa and buy a house for $50,000, <laughs> big house, you know, with a whole bunch of land. If you really, that, you know, it's like, I don't know, man. I mean, it's like we live in a very narcissistic society because of social media. So people always want to just up the, you know, up the next person. Like I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm driving this car. And we're losing ourselves in a major way. And, you know, I'm a cynic pessimist because how can you not be? I mean, it's um, the world around us is insane. I, I believe, the, I think you might even be saying that the world is wrong. Yeah, the world is. A, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Um, so yeah. My, my co-host wanted me to ask you about another filmmaker that he's a big fan of. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a big Tyler Perry booster. He's got me to watch some of his movies. I've, I'm in, I'm just impressed with sort of like the the audacious shifts in tone in in them, and also anyone who's doing something who's managing to carve out an indie space within the film industry is someone who I'm inclined to celebrate, whether or not I like their films. Uh, do you? What's your? What are your thoughts on? What, what Tyler Perry's been able to put together. I mean, I would say this. I have to give props to Tyler Perry for basically 
just created his own table that he can uh, sit at. Um, he's definitely connected to the black audience in a way where a lot of other black filmmakers have never connected. But again, that goes back to triangular cinema theory in terms of the re-education of the critic and the audience. So that's one. I'm not a big fan of his movies in general. I just think that um, they're all kind of one and the same, you know. Uh, and but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna like. I think he's done a lot for the black community. I think um, it's quite amazing that he was able to even through capitalism like create this empire. Only time will tell how that really truly benefit benefits the black community. Um, but am I seeking out his films? Nah, I'm not. You know, like I've watched six or seven Medea films. I think they're funny. But um, have you watched Medea Goes to Prison? I, I think I have. I've watched the Janet Jackson one. I watched quite a few. But and they're entertaining. But I mean, like in terms of um, walking away feeling like okay you know i've been i've been satiated now i don't get that from tyler perry but i don't hate him like a lot of people hate him you know what i'm saying um uh i don't know it's yeah, um he's, he's i try to find a i mean he's he's done a lot more for the community just on a financial monetary yeah. uh level than a lot of other rich cats but at the same time it's like Capitalism forces uh, us to deal with it on an individual level, these problems, you know. Like capitalism creates poverty and then criminalizes poverty. So, um, but I'm not, I, like he he can make the five movies and I probably would not seek them out. Now, if I'm with my wife or some friends and we're kind of high or wasted and <laughs> late and on cable, am I going to change the channel? Probably not. I'll probably watch it, you know, but I'm not like sitting by the window waiting for the next Tyler Perry joint to drop. I don't really do that with anyone, really, to be honest with you. Well, that's um, what I was going to ask you is like, so yeah. who are you, like, who inspires you today? Who are you following? They're all, they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> they're all dead. And so their body of work is, I mean, not all of them. I mean, Simi Leong is a huge inspiration. He's a, he's Malaysian, but he's, he's I believe he's raised in Taiwan. He's a Taiwanese filmmaker. Um, he's made like nine or ten features. I've seen them all except for one. Um, I would say Bellatar is a big inspiration. He's still alive, but he quit making narratives in 2011. Um, Javi Garima still alive, but he has he can't get funding funding to make another movie. Charles Burnett's still alive, but he's still trying to get projects off the ground. He's 75 years old. So there's not a lot, you know, like if Holly Garima dropped the joint, I'll be there first night, opening night. You know what I'm saying? Same with Simon Leong, but these cats are in the 60s and 70s. No one young. Um, and a lot of my favorite filmmakers are long gone. So, um, or they're still alive and they haven't made a movie in 20, 30 years because no one thinks, you know, will support them. Um, so that's just kind of how it is, you know? Now, I... I'm, I think you may have said this at the beginning of, of our talk, or maybe it's something that I read in uh, preparing for this, reading some of the interviews you've done, but you do consider yourself to be a part of a group of filmmakers who are all on a similar page. Would you like to speak to who they are? Yeah, yeah. So Marari Garima, he's the, he's the son of Haile Shirakian, um, 
his mom's name is Sherry uh, Kiana, and they both were LA Rebellion students, filmmakers from UCLA. So Marari Garima and Tume Gant. Um, he's a professor, film professor, and filmmaker, a musician in New York. Jonathan Burnett, he's the son of Charles Burnett. He was one of my students at LMU. Uh, he now teaches at Pratt. I think Jonathan teaches at Pratt. So the four of us are working on an anthology, and the goal is to just keep making projects and kind of champion each other in our pursuits because we're trying to introduce a new wave, a new wave of black cinema. Uh, and Tume and I are the same age. I think Jonathan and Marari are the same age, and there's like a 10-year gap between Jonathan and Marari, myself, and Tume. Uh, they're in the early 30s. We're in our early 40s. Um, their dads are legendary, uh, but and also filmmakers. And our dads, I think, and Timmy's dad is a musician. My dad was a musician too, or is a musician. So we're trying to start something new. And there's other people too who would bring into the fold, but we're, you know, it's hard. It's hard um, just getting support. So for us, it's a hobby. And most of us are teachers. <laughs> I mean, Javi Garima was a teacher for 40 years at Howard. Charles Burnett teaches at, uh, uh, where does he teach? Bard. Been teaching at Bard. So it is a way to kind of sustain yourself and to find support. I mean, I'm about to make another feature in April with some grant money from my institution that I work with. You know, it ain't a lot, but it's enough to kind of get going. So, you know, it's like you got to scrape where you can. And, uh, most people, you know, even how they write movies, it's like they need millions of dollars. <laughs> I'm like, yo, I can make a feature for 20 grand. <laughs> if that's how I got to do it for the rest of my life, okay, then we're going to make these small films. But they'll be made, you know? You know, I, I, as you're talking about it, I'm, uh, I mean, really, Hollywood's loss is academia's gain. And mm -hmm. in a weird way, not that I, I mean, I'd like to see these people, yourself included, getting the funding to make the films that they, that we should, that I should be able to enjoy or be challenged by. Yeah. But the idea that there are these great filmmakers that you, that students have access to these teachers and that these teachers are teaching the filmmakers of the future. Yeah. That is... In a weird way, it's kind of hopeful. Like if if Haile Grima was getting to make lots of movies, which he should be able to, then he wouldn't be probably wouldn't be able to be the professor that he is. And you've mm -hmm. got to think of generations of students coming through that class and coming out into the world. I, who's to say that that's not a more powerful way to live? Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, would say. Yeah, totally. I would yeah. agree with that. So. And it's in a weird, it's like it's a weird kind of blessing that comes from the messed up system. Mm -hmm. Like if they were more successful, they wouldn't be able to do the good work they're doing. And yeah. not that we should encourage. I, <laughs> I hope that I'd like to see all these filmmakers. I'd like to see you get so successful that you could fund the next film from... Charles Burnett and Wendell B. Harris and Haile Garima. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I guess is that 
is that re- is again you're not pursuing a path that's going to make you uh, a Spike Lee, Ava DuVernay, Barry Jenkins kind of money so that you could do that. But is that ultimately on some level the goal? Yeah, I mean, at one, I would fund anything that they wanted to do, and then I would also take whatever big money I had and try to find ways to, um, you know, uplift the black community, the poor black community. I mean, it wouldn't be about uh, investing that money to make money. I mean, like, I would be helping people left and right. Um, but that's me. That's not everybody, you know? And I, I, I don't know any of these rich black people uh, personally, so I can't say if they're on the download doing these things. You know, I know Prince, when he died, it came out that he had spent a lot of his fortune on uh, helping people. And he, the one caveat was you don't tell anybody that I'm helping you. So that was cool. That's great. But Prince also, too, was an amazing artist who was not all about selling out and status quo. He fought the studio system, uh, the music industry quite intensely. So we knew where he kind of stood with integrity. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I would totally support these older cats, but they're not, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's uh, also don't know if I want to keep making movies forever. I mean, I have some things I want to get off my chest, but it's not the best way it's not the best usage of money, you know. Yeah. Well, um, I one of the things we say on the podcast a lot is if you've made one movie, that's an accomplishment. You've made one good or great movie, that's a mm-hmm. phenomenal accomplishment. If you've made two or three, yeah. that's a career. And, you know, and there... There are some people who can keep it going, but there are diminishing returns. We had a, a filmmaker on named Paul Williams, who was an, one of the uh, very early new Hollywood guy, a young guy in Hollywood in the early 60s or mid 60s making films. And so he was colleagues with Scorsese. Like he he met all these people when he yep. was a little bit ahead of them. Like they were coming to meet with him, Spielberg, Scorsese, Coppola. Um, and... It's interesting to talk to him now because he made, I think he made five films. He feels good about them and he walked away and he doesn't feel bad about walking away. And he looks at someone like a Spielberg and he's like, the guy is an amazing filmmaker, but he's going to yep. drop dead making films and never have learned anything about being a human being. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think that gets to what you're talking about is like there's a certain amount of if you're just pursuing to pursue... You need to take breaks. He said he met, he met, uh, he learned this or he was given this information, this uh, wisdom from a meeting he he was able to have with Jean Renoir, who said basically, yeah, you should all, you, you should always take breaks between your films. And if you don't have a life, you can't be a filmmaker where what you're saying is like Hollywood kind of demands that you don't have a life and you stay on that treadmill if you're going to be the most successful filmmakers that's what they do yep. they never yep. stop working which is not necessarily the best nope. measure of success yeah not at all i was going to say on the on that line i i then i hope that someday you get to stop making films but not before you've made yeah. just a few yeah. more because i yeah. <laughs> i'd like to see them and I would love to see one of I would love to see your films get successful for our sake yeah. as well as for Thank yours. 
because I think what you're talking about, and I'm very interested in this anthology film you're talking about, uh, I'm just excited. I think on this podcast, we're pro-film, and we're excited about about movies that go places that other films don't go, even if that means alienating some of the audience, maybe mm-hmm. a majority of the audience. And the filmmakers who are willing to do that are the ones that we're the most excited about. And I, I think that you bring in this other aspect of it. Like I said, I think what almost, I'd say 90% of what you're saying could be applied to anyone who has a unique artistic vision in a capitalist society and wants that, you know, wants to find a way to express that to a large yeah. number of people. And I, I, in a way, I'd like to universalize the message in that way as we, as we close this to, for people to take inspiration from the way that you've managed to maintain your independent voice and your independent spirit, even at the, you know, there, there are costs that go with it, but from the outside, when I'm watching, I know you're a cynic and you're a pessimist, and I, I'm, I'm with you on that. And at the same time, the fact that you are able to continue to do the work you're doing and gather the community that you're gathering and to share this information with me and so I can share it with others, I think that's all reason for guarded optimism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know for sure. Yeah. I agree. So uh, where can people track you down where could people find your work find are you on any of the social media posting about stuff where, where would you like people to track you down they can go to skinnermyers.com and hit, hit me up there and then um the sleepingnegro.com is where uh the film web pages art matin films is our distributor for the usa and sudu connection is our distributor internationally um we're on Instagram as a sleeping Negro film and we're on Twitter as TSN underscore film. So they can find the film stuff there and go to my personal website to get in touch with me. SkinnerMyers.com. Excellent. And I encourage everyone to follow those and uh, just keep an eye out for the sleeping Negro when it comes to an mm-hmm. art house near you in the coming year. And then eventually to streaming in uh, all the places where films stream. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Skinner. Um, always a pleasure talking with you. I uh, I hope you're putting together your Noscars list. <laughs> Last year's Noscars list was a, you know, you just knocked it out of the park. Uh, and in fact, our neck, the film we're going to be covering on our next episode is uh, Residue going to do a full episode about that and uh so uh, maybe maybe we'll get it right and you'll enjoy it (laughs) (laughs) that sounds good radio eight ball andras here when i'm not co-hosting the world is wrong podcast i'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Show.
Hey y'all, it's Amy from the Pink Among Men podcast. I know, you are really, really busy with your sourdough starter and your fourth rewatch of The Office. So it's totally cool if you don't have time for an informative, perspective-bending podcast right now. But if you do have a few minutes to spare in your jam-packed schedule, I want to offer Pink Among Men for your consideration. Pink Among Men is a weekly conversation on different perspectives, gender, and marginalization in the creative community. We chat with actors from shows you watch, directors who make movies that you want to watch, and comedians from stand-up shows that you'll probably never watch, but you should. Every Wednesday, they sit down to talk about the tragedy and the triumph that comes with not being a white dude in arts and entertainment. You probably don't have time for it, but maybe subscribe so you can listen when you're a little less busy. Get Pink Among Men on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're a proud member of the Paper House Network. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. That was cool. Uh, I want to take a class taught by him. That sounds great. I... Uh... It makes me miss film school. There's like people that are that smart about movies and can just kind of drop all these little seeds, you know, in your mind of not just movies to see, but just different ways to think about movies. That makes for a very good uh, film professor. So I have a feeling that he is going to have some pretty great filmmakers coming out of his his tutelage. Well, of course uh, you think so because he he backed you up on the Wayan Brothers. Yeah, I yeah. mean, among many other things. But I didn't that make like you happy? It, that well, he he kind of backed me up on the way in brothers. I feel like he is clearly into the early stuff, like the Keenan Ivory Wayans, but he hasn't seen sort of the more what I'd say is challenging uh, films, like the, the Marlon Wayans. Like he didn't have an opinion on a white chicks or a little man. So once once he goes through all of them and praises them, then I'll know he's on my side. <laughs> But well, I'll give I'll give him I'll give him half a point. <laughs> I think it's the other way around. I think you might have got half a point. He's the professor. <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got half a point. Uh, no, no, that was a. <laughs> I'm glad you threw that in there. It's 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 uh, it was good to hear. Well, he he brought it up. He brought it up through talking about Hollywood shuffles. So that was fantastic that he brought it up, and then then you had to talk yeah. more about the Wayans. So that was that was cool. Yes, and um, we will be doing a Wayans Brothers episode. We've already started talking about it. We're going to do... Someday. Yeah, so like a, along the lines of what we've done with Stephen Frears and Nicole Kidman. Uh, maybe not a full month on the Wayans Brothers, but definitely <laughs> one epic full... episode where yeah. <laughs> you talk about all of the movies and TV shows and whatnot, and <laughs> I will try and keep up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like it. <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you dug it. I, I, I felt like there was a lot, there was a lot there for, like as you said, just a, planted a lot of seeds and places for people to explore. And uh, yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think it's cool. I think it's cool too because it's just a different way of thinking about black cinema. Because I feel like most people they do just kind of think like, oh, Spike Lee. I've seen Spike Lee movies. Yeah done <laughs> and it's nice to know that 
there's a much bigger world. Like it's been going on for a long time. It just it isn't what people are talking about, or it's not what's taught in most film schools. You know, it's just like the, these movies he's talking about from like Nigeria and stuff. Like I've never heard of these people, and now I now I know, which is great. Um, and I didn't know about just the whole like the first way like the, he was talking about the four cinemas. Like I didn't know. I never heard that before either. Seemed like you didn't either. You were talking about it, asking questions. Like, have yeah. you? I never heard of it talked about in that way, which was fascinating. Nor had I. And until I met Skinner, I'd never heard anyone talk about uh, the L.A. Rebellion film movement, which yeah. now seems it's one of those things like when this was happening at a time when I was alive and for a good chunk of it in L.A. paying attention, being very much on the ground in the film business and to, to realize how segregated a world, which you thought was desegregated is, is uh, it's just an odd and disorienting feeling, but it's, it's good to, it's good to have it because it means you've expanded, but then just realizing <laughs> how you mean the, f- the yeah. film world. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. The film. Well, yeah, world. I mean, it's like, it's, it's sad because you think of Hollywood as being this very open liberal place, or at least, you know, for a while now. And you, it's sad to, to know that the history of that that's even taught in schools is as <laughs> wrong <laughs> and leaving so much out as like U.S. history is or other histories. You know, it's very much guided towards the the wealthy white Hollywood people like film school. The classes, at least the classes I took, you know, to get yeah. still like even that's even at Evergreen. Like I went to Evergreen and there was definitely like queer cinema and it dipped its toes into things. But we were still kind of studying and watching Citizen Kane, Jean-Luc Godard, you know, like the basic film school stuff. All good. But like there's so much more. <laughs> Actually, it's crazy. The only the only time that I was introduced to this movement well while not necessarily being aware that i was being introduced to a movement was seeing killer of sheep in a class at evergreen yeah that's a great movie yeah and that's probably the most well-known of that but like i didn't know it was even part of a movement i just assumed it was just a good movie from a long time ago but now i'm because i love that movie so i'm excited now to kind of dig in and find out more about all the other people from that time um no that's fantastic uh, and <laughs> I think, uh, he also hit on in this episode, just certain thoughts that I have about movies and the kind of like independent film and the state of independent film in Hollywood. And I feel like if I sat down with Skinner, I feel him and I would really get along. I, I think we have the same kind of ideas of the bullshit factory <laughs> <laughs> and sort of the, uh, <laughs> what, what independent film should be and could be, but isn't, you know? Like, that's definitely been something that I've been thinking about for a while, especially since making my first movie a few years ago. So, like, I think just sort of he's hit on some interesting things just about sort of like the kind of cinema that could and should exist, but sadly is few and far between. Yeah, and just that idea that there are... uh, Like, the people that we think of as being the independent successes in the film business are really are are a lot of them they there are they're like this how he describes the spike lees like yeah your first couple of films you're independent but if you're independent in that system 
the system starts to work on you. And, <laughs> and yeah. yeah, and it happens so many times. So many filmmakers that will make like one movie that like comes out of Sundance or even let, like festivals not as big that has a unique voice. And then they just get sucked into, you know, something that Disney is making. <laughs> it's their second movie. And you're like, what happened? <laughs> is it? I mean, I've never been in that position. So maybe it's hard to turn the money away when you've struggled for so long. And you're like, well. And then I think a lot of filmmakers tell themselves, well, I'll take this money. But then the next one will be back to the little thing. But then you just never go back. There's There's a filmmaker whose name I will not say. Because it's, you know, I just like this was a story I heard for about them where they were making their small movies, their movies got bigger, and then they couldn't ever go back to making the small movies because they just got too comfortable and too happy that all these other people were doing all the work. And it's like, oh, when I direct now, I can, it's more relaxed and I don't have to like run around as much. And so it's like <laughs> treating your job like, you're working at a Home Depot and all, now you're the manager in the office and you don't have to do the heavy lifting. I don't know if that's how art should be made. I don't know. That's just my opinion. Well, but And I think that, I mean, it's sort of what, what Skinner is talking about is, I mean, he's coming at it from his own particular point of view. But I think there is, there are some people who make art with the intention to please others. And you might yeah. make a really great artistic little first film but you did that to please one group of people and then you get hired to work in Hollywood and now you're pleasing another group of people and people yeah. pleasing people generally are more successful and so it, that just builds itself up whereas certain other artists which I definitely consider myself to be a part of and for I don't necessarily even say that's better or worse but there is an antagonistic aspect. And like you're not even antagonizing someone else. You're antagonizing yourself and your own, the things that you're thinking about that, you, that matter to you. And I think for yeah. those people, I think either they don't succeed in the film business or they succeed to such a level that they're allowed to continue to please themselves regardless yeah. of whether or not. Like I'm, I think, like I guess I'm thinking of like someone like Hal Hartley is someone to me yeah, who seems yeah. like he's so. What he's doing is so antagonistic to everything else that everyone else is doing, <laughs> and he got lucky enough that that pleased some people and got popular at a time. Yeah. But I don't get the sense that if like when he was given budgets, he also made films that were just like the films like you could only make one kind of film <laughs> it's yeah. like a Hal Hartley film he didn't and I <laughs> and those are the artists and those people yeah. wouldn't even know how to please someone if they were given the opportunity to and I really do yeah. think those are two different uh, artistic personalities and maybe Spike Lee is more of a people pleaser even though he he seems I mean he's definitely an antagonizer but I think maybe that's where what's maybe what's going unsaid in our conversation is what's different is that uh, what I think what Skinner's saying is that Spike Lee is kind of making movies more for you and me than for Skinner and what he's trying to represent anymore. Uh, huh. But, you know, I think, yeah, there's just so many different complexities. The other thing I was thinking about this while we were, while we were talking just now is something you said in the episode we did last week about even cowgirls get the blues where we're talking about who could direct it 
And you were saying, well, the, in 1993, there there weren't really any fi- women directors who were re- who were successful who could have made this film. And I threw in Jane Campion because she was the only one that we could think of. <laughs> but I yeah. feel like there's, I think probably someone who was sort of the way Skinner is hooked into the L.A. rebellion, that a, a female filmmaker or someone who was hip to the female film, the female director scene in the early 90s was probably screaming into their uh, pod server <laughs> that like a, a list of 10 names of women who could have just who totally could have done it and were making films that were playing the festival circuits that we just weren't hip to just like didn't, we weren't didn't hip hear to about. Yeah. And we'd love I mean, if, the, if you are that person. We'd love to have you on as a guest to tell us how the world is wrong about women's cinema. If I mean, if there is such a thing as women's cinema, uh, maybe there is women's cinema. It seems like it would just be cinema that is made by women. <laughs> Something about women's cinema sounds like it's like a, like a women's league and a sports thing. Like they get paid less. They, you know, they get less. You know, like, just just cinema, just cinema, cinema made by women. Um, okay, well. Uh, well, thanks for for holding space for this conversation. Even though you weren't there, I felt you. I hope your your presence was felt in it. <laughs> I would never have asked him about Tyler Perry or the Wayne Brothers without you, Brian. So, <laughs> yeah, and he gave good answers to both. So I'm I'm satisfied. <laughs> no, good, good. The professor gets an A from the video store clerk. That's awesome. <laughs> You're more than a, yeah. you were a video store manager. I know, I know. Um, Okay, well, uh, next week we are going to be talking about a film that Skinner introduced us to in last year's Noscars ceremony, uh, a film called Residue from his friend, the director Marawi Garima. And you can find that on Netflix. So check it out before we get to it. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on what we talked about in this episode, you can find us at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can find us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast, and you can find us on Twitter at worldiswrongpod. And yeah, uh, is there any particular question you'd like you know you'd like to hear what people have an answer to, Brian? Or you have any you have any, <laughs> any anything you want to prompt the listeners to maybe reach out to us because it feels so goddamn lonely making this podcast. So glad that you're here to keep me company. Uh, I just you know I just want to hear more about other movies. Like I want to hear from the people like we did from Skinner in this episode. Like let's hear the black cinema that you think that we don't know about or any movie really. Yeah. Like we like and we're open to do episodes about any movie that strikes our fancy when we watch it, you know? And in fact, the next episode is one that Skinner told us about. And it's so like, we're, we're very, we don't just have a master list that we've stuck to for, you know, <laughs> and we're not adding to it or changing it. Like we're, we're going, we're, we're jumping around and being surprised by new things that we didn't know about. We know a lot about movies, but we don't know everything about movies. Yes. We are part of the world, Brian. And yeah. as we like to remind the listeners, that wherever they are, the world is wrong, and it's probably wrong about them, and us, and you. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? 
Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.